Good Wednesday morning. It is Kale and Company live right here on WKXL and HTalkRadio.com. 1450 on your AM dial. It's been there since 1946. 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester, and well beyond the Queen City as well. And streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. And we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. Delight to have you with us. And as we promised yesterday, we are going to give away another pair of lift tickets for the beautiful resort in Henniker known as Pat's Peak, where I'll bet any number of you listening to the program right now first learned to ski. And I was thinking uh, coming into work today that even though I am not a skier, it would be, I think today would be a delightful day to, to hit the slopes, and you can do it. At Pat's Peak, believe it or not, despite all the rain we've had over the last uh, several days, fortunately today is a beautiful day, conditions just pristine for uh, skiing or any outdoor activities, and I'm, I'm reading right now directly from the uh, Pat's Peak website, which is, ironically enough, patspeak.com. That thanks to hours of snowmaking and grooming, they are able to be open for skiing and snowboarding with the same number of trails prior to the storm. That's right. Uh, it says our snowmaking team is ready to get back out there to resurface trails and looking to add some trails to our account for the Christmas holiday week. Look for the uh, debut of Cascade Basin and snow tubing coming soon. Uh, more details at the end of this week. Uh, this week's uh, lift hours, uh, Tuesday through Friday from 9 to 4, and Saturday and Sunday from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. They will be closed on Christmas Day in order for their employees to spend that time with their families. And night skiing at Pat's Peak starts on December the 26th, so Next week, night skiing at Pat's Peak will get underway. And it's a beautiful sight. If you're uh, driving down uh, routes 202 and 9, heading toward Henniker in the direction of New England College in Henniker, off to your left, uh, you can see the uh, Pat's Peak ski slopes. And it's a beautiful sight. It, it really and truly is. And you see... Uh, people out there uh, skiing, and uh, and they, the night skiing is terrific. Not all uh, ski areas are able to offer that, but they can at uh, at Pat's Peak, and uh, it's great. So we have a a pair of passes to give away. As a matter of fact, why don't we do it right now? Andrew is all set. He's at the controls today, and just uh, give Andrew a call, the first person to get through, 603-224-1450, 603-224-1450.
1450. And if you miss out today, uh, we will do it tomorrow and then again on Friday. And we may even do it into next week as well. We will find out. But Andrew is there ready and uh, more than willing to uh, take your call at 603-224-1450 if you would like a pair of ski passes for Pat's Peak. Absolutely free. We will send them to you. And uh, that's it. Simple as that. Thanks to the folks at the Pat's Peak Ski Area in Henniker. Well, if you were uh, watching the news last night at around 630, uh, you uh, heard this story breaking. I saw it first, I believe, on uh, ABC News on WMUR. Uh, Republican figures and top legal analysts expressed united outrage at uh, Colorado's all-Democrat Supreme Court ruling that uh, former President Trump must be stricken from the state's 2024 election ballot due to a violation of the 14th Amendment's Insurrection Clause. So the Ingram angle, which I did not see, uh, hosted by uh, Laura Ingram on Fox News, pointed out that from the moment the January 6th riot commenced in 2021, Democrats and Trump opponents were urging the use of the term insurrection to describe what took place at the Capitol. Trump also has yet to be formally convicted of insurrection or any uh, Confederacy era statutes that the 14th Amendment is alluding to. Ingram noted the Colorado Supreme Court, while entirely Democrat, itself was split on the four to three ruling to strike Trump from the ballot. Some Democrats were apprehensive to make such a landmark determination. The court issued a stay until the first week of January to give Trump's team time to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court before the centennial state's ballot is finalized. The Trump campaign promptly said they plan to appeal to the highest bench in the land, the United States Supreme Court. Hey, we have Kyle on the line. Kyle, how are you? Good morning, Ken. I'm doing great. Uh, and I got to agree with you. I learned to ski at Pass Peak starting in 1993, and it's still been such a, a wonderful part of my life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to hear that they are going to be able to open up after all that rain that we had the other day. That is pretty incredible, isn't it, that they, they're able to do that? I mean, uh, they I, I think most of their, their snow is uh, man-made anyhow at, at Pat's Peak, and uh, they're able to resume. It's a little bit hard to believe with uh, uh, the record amount of rain we, we had uh, those two days. And uh, so, so, Kyle, you, you, 1993, that's uh, that's what, that's like, uh, that's 30 years ago now, huh? And I, I hate aging ourselves, but yes, it's, it's been a, you know, a long time. Since, you, uh, you, you, know. you must have started very young. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was very uh, young. My parents moved up to New Hampshire, and they wanted us to do something during the winter, so they, they got us into skiing, and it was, uh, you know, a very um, difficult 
for not having a clue what to do, but uh, I was able to learn there and great, you know, continue going there into high school and, uh, you know, really loved uh, the winter sports. And it's been difficult for sure with, with global warming and everything else that's going on to have the, uh, the snow as long as we did back in 1993. Obviously, your winters are are a lot shorter around here for some people it's wonderful but for obviously for the ski industry in past peak it is uh difficult to get people to come to the mountain when you don't see snow in your backyard yep that is very true so um you've won a couple of passes now and uh, do you get to ski on a regular basis you know it's funny enough i i um, was planning on going a lot more this year the past couple of years between the covid year and everything like that i haven't been going as much but uh, this year I have a ten-year-old nephew that has been really trying to get me to bring him and go out some more. So this is going to be a wonderful Christmas present to uh, to get my ten-year-old nephew out to go again this year. Uh, that that is terrific. And uh, I was talking with uh, I, I I've heard from so many people over the years that that's where they learn to ski, Pat's Peak, and uh, Dan Weed, who was in studio yesterday from Weed Family Automotive, that's where he learned to ski and uh, and all his kids. So uh, it was. Uh, you know, uh, it's certainly uh, a, a great area and brings back great memories for so many people. And it's still there going strong after all these years. They've done a fantastic job. And if you want to go skiing today on what I think is a beautiful day for skiing, uh, you know, people can can do that thanks to their, their snowmaking ability there at Pat's Peak. And night skiing, by the way, Kyle, begins uh, on the 26th, the day after Christmas. So... Uh, and then it's great night skiing. It's great to see it uh, on the lights on the trails, and uh, it's just a, just a great place. So I'm I'm glad you won, Kyle. Congratulations! I got to plug the amazing chocolate chip cookies that they have at Pat's because oh well okay the, uh, wow the the, the M M&M M chocolate chip cookies are uh, uh, amazing and. To know that I've been eating those things for 30 years, maybe that's uh, <laughs> caused my uh, my weight increase. But either way, I've uh, I got to plug the, the cookies and the uh, the amazing staff at Pat's. Oh yeah, and there's a there's a great little restaurant there uh, as well that uh, that I've been to on any number of occasions. So uh, great spot. And uh, chocolate chip cookies. Add the chocolate chip cookies and hot chocolate. How could you beat that? I'm looking forward to it. And <laughs> thank right. you so much again. Kyle, congratulations and a Merry Christmas to you. That's Kyle, our winner of the Pat's Peak ski tickets today. But we have more folks and we'll give them away uh, tomorrow and Friday as well. And maybe, just maybe, into next week too. We'll see. We'll take a break. Kale and Company continues right here. WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Kale and Company Live, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday. Oh, those shopping days are coming to an end. Before Christmas, stores were very busy yesterday, and I'm sure they will be right up until Sunday evening. For those who like to put it off until the very last minute, 
Hey, by the way, uh, good friend uh, Mike Moffat wanted everybody to know that uh, former New Jersey governor and current Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie is going to be the featured guest at a legislative forum, which will take place this evening, 5 o'clock, and that will be at the Sea Dog Brewery in Exeter. All right, Chris Christie will be in Exeter tonight at 5 at the Sea Dog Brewery. And uh, the event marks the return of the popular Legislative Beer Caucus Founders Happy Hour, a political confab that they uh, that they have. The Beer Caucus is an informal group of uh, several dozen current and former New Hampshire legislators who socialize and network while addressing important Granite State issues. The four Beer Caucus founders include uh, District 2 State Senator Tim Lang, who is the chairman of the Senate Ways and Means Committee, District 17 State Senator Howard Pearl, chairman of the Senate Committee on Executive Departments and Administration, and uh, Merrimack District 4 State Rep Mike Moffat, chair of the House Committee on State-Federal Relations and Veterans Affairs, and the Honorable Reed Panaciti, the former House Assistant Floor Leader. By the way, uh, three of those four people are going to be in studio here tomorrow. Uh, Senator Senators Lang and Pearl will be in studio, and Representative Moffat will be here because they're going to tell you about a a bell ringing ceremony, a bell ringing uh, outing for them that takes place uh, every year on Store Street in Concord, right out in front of one of the uh, state-run uh, liquor stores, and uh, they are going to be out there uh, raising funds for charitable causes. On Saturday, so they are going to be uh, in studio here tomorrow, uh, talking about that and all other things uh, that are related to the uh, New Hampshire legislature, both uh, in the House and in the Senate. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who is now running, uh, I believe, according to most of the polls, second in New Hampshire, second only to uh, former President Trump. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley says emphatically, emphatically she said it, that she has no interest in being anyone's vice president, including joining a potential ticket with former President Trump. She says it's not even a conversation, and it doesn't matter what candidate wants me to answer it, I don't play for second. Haley told the Christian Broadcast Network's David Brody in an interview after a campaign stop in Iowa, I don't know what more I can say than to get them to understand that. Haley said the candidates don't undergo the rigors of a presidential campaign only to end up as the sidekick on a presidential ticket, though historically that's exactly how some vice presidential nominees ended up being on the, on the ballot. Uh, Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris both ran for the top job in uh, 2008 and 2020, respectively, before eventually being elected as vice president. So uh, we shall see. In fact, uh, Haley went as far as to say it's offensive when anybody says uh, that, oh, she wants to be vice president. 
You don't do something like this to be vice president, she said. You don't sacrifice emotionally, mentally, physically with your family, everything to come in second place. Trump is currently on pace to blast through the early primaries and caucuses. And uh, the former president has a right now uh, nationally a 50-point lead over Florida, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Haley sits in third place. Trump also has a 26-point lead in Iowa, 24-point lead in New Hampshire, the first two states that will kick off the nomination process next month. And recent polls have shown that Haley is gaining ground in the Granite State. And depending on which poll you look at, in many of them, she is uh, number two behind Trump. But a uh, quite a distance, uh, quite a distance behind former President Trump, who was uh, scratched from that uh, Colorado ballot last night. But I don't think that's going to stand. I think the Supreme Court is going to rule that uh, unconstitutional uh, fairly quickly, and the Trump campaign has indicated that they will appeal, as you knew they would. Hey, it was a, a tough night uh, for both Boston's uh, winters, winter sports teams. Bruins and Celtics both lost in overtime. In fact, the Bruins played their fourth consecutive overtime game last night, and uh, they lost to Minnesota 4-3. to at the TD Garden, David Posternak had a couple of goals for Boston. Bruins will have a quick trip to Winnipeg and Minnesota Friday and Saturday nights before the Christmas holiday. Celtics, though, that was even more discouraging because they led in this game uh, last night by as many as 17 points in San Francisco, but uh, wound up losing to the Golden State Warriors 132 to 126. Seth Curry, Steph Curry had uh, probably the uh, the worst game or one of the worst games of his career on on Sunday night when his consecutive three pointer streak ended at 286 consecutive games. But Steph Curry last night was Steph Curry, uh, 33 points to lead. Uh, the Warriors passed the Celtics. Derek White had 30 for the Celtics. And they'll be right back in action tonight. Another late game on the West Coast against the Sacramento Kings uh, this evening. A very young and uh, up-and-coming uh, NBA team. So that is not uh, going to be in an easy matchup for the Celtics tonight coming off uh, last night's overtime loss to Golden State. Not that they have to travel very far, not very far from San Francisco to Sacramento, but uh, Celtics uh, will be hoping to get back on the winning track, and I think one way to uh, help in that regard is put up fewer three-pointers. They took, uh, now granted it was an overtime game, they played five extra minutes last night, but they put up 58 58 three-point shots in that game. That's ridiculous. Uh, utterly ridiculous. For a, a team uh, like San Francisco is playing without their best defender in Draymond Green, who's under suspension right now uh, by the NBA. Uh, it was just uh, 
not not uh, pretty last night. Some of those three-point misses were pretty ugly. Brought us back to the days of Marcus Smart when he was missing ugly threes. I thought we were done with that. Anyway, not a pretty sight. Celtics lost. They'll try to get back in the win column tonight in Sacramento before they go to Los Angeles for a couple of games with uh, the Clippers and the Lakers. Lots of uh, high school basketball in the area last night. Uh, Bedford uh, beat Trinity. Pinkerton over Concord. Central beat Goffstown. Milford over Bishop Brady. Cole Brown Northwood down Merrimack Valley. It was Hanover over John Stark. West beat Lebanon. Mascoma defeated Belmont. Conant over Pinkerton in a pitcher's duel, as it were, 29-28. How about that one? They must have both been in the uh, Dean Smith four-corner offense that many of you uh, veteran listeners to WKXL will remember. Uh, Derryfield beat Messinic. Girls winners last night, Bedford, Goffstown, Memorial, Milford, Merrimack Valley, Concord, Christian, Pembroke, and Franklin. Uh, boys hockey this afternoon in Exeter. The world is revolving around Exeter today, folks. Concord will take on Exeter 3 at the rinks of Exeter. Great place to watch a game. And uh, tonight, Bo will be at Hanover at 520. And Bishop Brady, Merrimack Valley, Concord Christian Academy will be at Pinkerton at uh, 6 o'clock. That'll be at the uh, Tritown Ice Arena in Hooksett. All right, we are going to take a break. And then on the other side, we'll talk about a book by the name of All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit. Right after these words, Kale and Company Live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company Live right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, joining us on this segment of Kale and Company is the author of uh, a brand new book called All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit. Its author is with us, Dr. Stephen Cohn. Dr. Cohn, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is uh, great to have you with us. And Dr. Cohn is a 40-year veteran of uh, trauma care, having served as a surgeon in the U.S. Army Medical Corps in Desert Storm and later Division Chief of Trauma and Surgical Critical Care at Yale University School of Medicine. And uh, Dr. Cohn, what specifically is a uh, trauma surgeon and uh, what do they do? Well, a lot of people are confused that uh, trauma surgeons are emergency room doctors. And uh, while emergency room doctors are uh, essential uh, components of the whole healthcare network, they sort of take care of everything that comes into the hospital emergency room, you know, strokes and asthma attacks and heart attacks um, and, and some injuries. But when the injuries are more severe, then they call uh, the trauma surgeons. We're all general surgeons with uh, typically extra training in trauma and surgical critical care. 
and and we manage the patients that are are badly injured from the time that they arrive to the hospital uh, up through the operating room. We operate on them and then take them to the, and manage them in the intensive care unit. We also manage all the really bad surgical or many of the really bad general surgical emergencies, such as uh, a perforated appendicitis or a bowel obstruction or a massive gastrointestinal bleed or something along those lines. So we um, uh, we do you know a kind of a wide range of, of surgical problems. Uh, I always tell people we're sort of the the experts in catastrophe. <laughs> so if someone is say bleeding to death in the labor and delivery after childbirth, they call us to come help. Uh, if uh, a medical patient in the uh, medical intensive care unit loses their airway and they need a surgical airway, they call us. Uh, we're um, we're uh, sort of uh, um, all hands on deck when when bad things are happening. Boy, I, I would have to say so. When was that moment uh, that that hit you that 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 told you that told you that you wanted to be a uh, a trauma surgeon? Well, I guess it was like a couple of days. I mean, I had an inkling, I suppose, when I was a, a beginning medical student. Uh, I was in at Baylor in Houston in, in Ben Top, which is their big uh, county hospital, and I was watching a lot of really bad trauma. And emergencies come in as a as a freshman medical student, and then uh, advance a, a couple of years. And as a uh, uh, on my first rotation, about two or three days in, I said, "Yep, this is it. I want to be a surgeon." Now, deciding what kind of general surgeon or what subspecialty in general surgery to do that came later after I'd had a chance to sort of sample the, uh, various different specialties. Uh, and I liked, you know, most of the areas of general surgery, everything from cancer surgery to vascular surgery and thoracic. But um, the, this one area seemed to attract me the most because the patients were so sick and it required a lot of um, calmness and a clear head in the face of a lot of chaos. You know, we often see uh trauma centers depicted on uh, television shows or uh, in the movies and we've, we've seen that now for a long long time but uh, how does that compare to what really uh, takes place in a trauma center well of course you know one of the um, the jobs of the um, uh, you know of a movie or television show is to entertain uh, therefore you know, they always depict emotions being high and uh, a kind of a certain frantic uh, pace uh, that doesn't really exist in the trauma center uh, because the the sicker the patients are, the calmer we have to be. And um, we sort of set the tone for the whole team. So uh, uh, when when people are really badly hurt and really, really sick, Everyone needs to be very calm and keep their heads and be very professional. So um, it, 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 uh, I guess you have to sort of think of us as we're like quarterbacks uh, in a, um, uh, uh, on, uh, with a big team, and we have to coordinate this team of, of highly trained professionals uh, and, uh, and work with all these different folks and keep everybody calm and collected because that's what it takes to uh, get the job done. There's not a lot of frantic activity or loud voices or people yelling back and forth. 
we're not running all over the place like chickens with our heads cut off. It's, <laughs> it's a fairly uh, stepwise methodologic uh, thing where uh, uh, we have to assess the patient. I remember, um, a lot of people don't, they seem to think that I, my, one of my favorite things that you see on television is someone comes rolling in the door, and as they're rolling in the door, a doctor or somebody, a nurse or whatever, starts naming off all their injuries. This person has a this, this, and this, and we need to do this, this, and this. There's no way to know what injuries someone has. If someone rolls over you know, their car and they come in with a low blood pressure, we have no idea what their injuries are. So it requires a certain, what we call the ABCs, which stand for airway, making sure they're, they have a patent uh, a breathing tube. Uh, breathing, making sure that they're breathing, you know, taking breath, circulation, making sure they have a blood pressure and a pulse. But we have to walk through the various steps to try to figure out why they they don't look right, you know, what they're bleeding from, where they're bleeding, and what the next intervention is. It's not a, you know, we don't just look at them and know what their injuries are. We can't, I can't look at you from across the room and know that your spleen is ruptured. Well, you and uh, other trauma surgeons have to possess a a real encyclopedic knowledge of, of medical science. But uh, how does uh, what part, what role does instinct play uh, in, into what you do? Well, you know, with uh, the kind of experience you get during your training and during your career, you start uh, recognizing certain patterns of injury. And, you, and understanding what circumstances are at particularly high risk for maybe uh, not fully appreciating the magnitude of what you're looking at. Um, so a good example is, say, uh, someone struck by a car, a pedestrian struck by a car. We know that's our highest mortality mechanism, we call it, you know, where the, the kind of injury that has the highest likelihood of killing you. And so when someone is hit by a car, even though they may look pretty good, rolling in the door, you know, we take them extra special concern. Uh, uh, and uh, But everyone, we're, we're concerned about everyone. And you start recognizing patterns of, of injury at, at, with experience. Um, so, well, you have to have knowledge. You also have to, you know, uh, rely on your uh, training. And uh, to some degree, I wouldn't use the term instinct. I would say experience mm. and, um, um, you know, another reason to stay calm, right? Because you have to quietly go through your little checklist in your mind of what could be causing this problem when maybe it's not obvious. So, um, so I, I think it's a, it's a combination of, of experience from your training and um, uh, just, you know, Continuing to reassess patients. Something. The other thing people think: not only can we just look at someone to make the diagnosis, but that they actually have, uh, you know, their that they look just as sick when they come rolling in as maybe a little bit later. And so, uh, trauma patients, because we have no idea what's wrong with them, will often look pretty good when they first come come in, and then deteriorate ten or fifteen minutes later. Mm. So we have to constantly reassess them. And start all over again, because what a person that looks perfectly fine initially, maybe now they're not talking to us. Is it because they've had a brain bleed 
and it's and it's getting larger, and now they're going into a coma. Is it because they are bleeding into their abdomen, or they have a bad, you know, pelvic fracture that that is they're bleeding from? So it's it's, it's uncertain, and therefore we have to constantly reassess them from head to toe, and often have to start all over again. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Cohn, and uh, Dr. Cohn, a 40-year veteran of uh, trauma care, has written uh, a new book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit, just out a little less than a month ago. Uh, Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Absolutely. All right. We will take a a quick break, and then we shall return right here, Kalen Company Live. WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. We'll be right back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com on this Wednesday. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Cohn. He is uh, the author of a, a brand new book, All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit. And uh, what a coincidence. We just had uh, a commercial on dealing with uh, car crashes. And I, I know you've seen uh, many victims of those in, in your uh, trauma unit days. Uh, how, do you, how do you stay calm, uh, doctor, and, and uh, you know, act so decisively when a, when a patient's life is hanging in the balance? Well, you know, um, and hopefully I won't be called right now because I'm on trauma right at this moment. Um, but I, I, it's usually fairly quiet at 8.30 in the morning. Um, the answer is that uh, I think that some of it is people go into the field because they're comfortable in the environment of sort of uncertainty and chaos. And some of it is the the training that you have over the and experience over the years. So, um, you know, uh, the, the kinds of people that like everything pretty organized and straightforward, um, and you know, they do an excellent job at say, you know, doing uh, hernia surgery. I, I do some hernia surgery. I enjoy it, but it's a, an elective uh, operation, and everything is lined up uh, and goes according to plan. Hopefully. Um, uh, if that's what you prefer to do exclusively, then you stay away from the trauma field. If you en- if you enjoy a little bit of uh, of a chaotic uh, um, uh, uh, patient experience, then then uh, uh, then you gravitate towards trauma. So I think it's it, it's sort of almost like natural selection uh, when you do this as a medical student or a resident. Uh, some people become sort of uh, uncomfortable, and some people are are, uh, are gravitating to to the area. I, I'm not sure it's it's is much more than that. Um, it's not like we take classes in you know meditation and um, you know calm, internal peace or something. Uh, it, it's just sort of the way we're built. Um, I, I'm not someone personally that gets nervous in a lot of situations, and um, I think that helps. Yeah, oh, absolutely so. Uh, well, you mentioned that you served as a surgeon in the U.S. Army a Medical Corps in, in Desert Storm. Uh, how would you, you compare your career as a, a military surgeon with your work in trauma centers across the country? Sure. Well, you know, to give credit, um, 
the, the combat casualty experience, the military experience has really informed civilian trauma care. And a lot of what we do uh, is, was, you know, originated on the, uh, on, from care of, by physicians and surgeons uh, in, in taking care of people who are wounded in, in battle. Um, and so uh, uh, while it's not essential, it, it is uh, uh, helpful uh, sometimes to, um, to have a military uh, uh, experience. Now, in my particular case, mine, mine didn't go the, the normal way. I, I decided to join the, uh, uh, the military when I was already a surgeon, already doing trauma care, and uh, I, my first job, most of my senior faculty had all served. They'd all been, you know, surgeons in Vietnam. And um, I, I didn't have, I wasn't, uh, in, you know, uh, old enough at that time. Uh, uh, and um, but, and my, as my father was like a corpsman in the Navy, and I had a family uh, 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 that had participated, I thought, well, this maybe this is a good time to give back to the, to the, to our country, and so I joined the Army Reserves, and I didn't, uh, I, I didn't anticipate that 18 months later, all the general surgeons would be activated in the Army Reserve to go to Desert Storm. But it was a, a really a good experience in the sense that I learned a lot about military medicine and the organization. And then when I re- after I returned, um, I moved down to run the trauma center in Miami, and. Uh, they asked us to set up the Army Trauma Training Center, where we trained all the forward surgical teams that uh, before they deployed to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, that was very rewarding. And then subsequently, I went down to uh, run the Department of Surgery at University of Texas in San Antonio, and the um, I worked closely um, with the uh, something called the Institute of Surgical Research, which does a lot of the Department of Defense's uh, combat casualty research. So I think it's, it's all one big trauma family. And, you know, the military surgeons have learned uh, a lot from a lot of quality science that's done in the civilian trauma world uh, and certainly uh, vice versa. So, so what are some of the changes that you've seen in, in your 40 years now of uh, trauma care? Well, there have been lots of improvements, no question. Um, there's been everything from the cars themselves, the seatbelts themselves, and the roadways are, are much safer, unquestionably, from collapsible steering wheels, better seatbelts. You, you, I, I can't tell from your voice how, how senior you are, but you may be able to remember the days when you could get a seatbelt that the shoulder was separate from the lap right. uh, seatbelt. <laughs> yeah. And... We would see a lot of patients that would not wear the lap part, and the shoulder part was an automatic. And so people would come in with part of the back of their liver ripped off because of the way the seatbelt would fire during a car crash. So they've redesigned seatbelts and bumpers, and, uh, you know, they have airbags, and, you know, there are a lot of different features that have made cars a lot safer and roadways safer. In fact, your your uh, your uh, listenership should understand that between 1960 and today, the the deaths on the roadway have gone from over six per hundred thousand miles driven to one. So it's we've had an almost 500 percent decrease in roadway fatalities related to um, improvements in trauma care. 
So the roadways, the, the pre-hospital providers, our, our paramedics and EMTs are much better trained. They're uh, better organized. Uh, there's more science behind what they do, and uh, they do an excellent job. Uh, obviously, there's lots of differences across the country, but, but they're, you know, uh, great at bringing patients in, um, stabilizing them and bringing them in. And then the kind of care we give from the beginning of the resuscitation, where it used to be tons of what we call crystalloids, like uh, uh, fluids that had no um, uh, no uh, ability to carry oxygen, that's evolved over the last uh, decades to primarily being blood and blood products, which even themselves are orders of magnitude safer. And um, and then, you know, the way we assess patients diagnostically, we, we do a lot of different things that are in some ways faster and more accurate. And then, and then finally, you know, once they get operated on and taken care of, in the ICU, uh, we have a lot more science behind what we're doing in terms of managing people on ventilators. So, you know, the outcomes are, are, are generally very good. I mean, we still have about 5% of bad traumas that die. And if you survive to, you know, about 50% of people are dead at the scene, meaning that you roll your motorcycle, uh, or no, the motorcycle gets hit by a car, and they find you, you know, they just pronounce you right out in the field. Um, but if you do survive to the hospital, that percentage of people that die, that small percentage that die, about third, uh, two-thirds of them die because of severe bleeding, and about one-third die because of severe, severe brain injury. So that probably hasn't changed a whole lot, that those those numbers, but the overall uh, uh, trauma system, I should mention that that's the other thing is the trauma system and the quality of the trauma centers is much higher, I believe, than it was 40 years ago, more organized, and there is a very rigorous verification process that is put on by a national organization, uh, Committee on Trauma of the American College of Surgeons, where they a very, um, you know, meticulously every couple of years go go uh, over all the deaths and complications that occur at all the trauma centers and review their their protocols and make sure that all, about 450 of them now, uh, all 450 of these centers are, you know, providing care at the highest level. So that's, you know, a regional uh, resource that, um, you know, helps, assure that you get the best care in the shortest possible time. Very good. It's good to know. And I, I, I was around before there were seatbelts at all. So, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's hard to believe these days, but uh, but it's true. And it's certainly uh, we always encourage people to uh, buckle those seatbelts because uh, I, I tell you what, it, it helped save my life at, at one time. And, uh, well, you know, can, can I interrupt you? Sure, you know, New, sure. New Hampshire, New Hampshire is the only state that doesn't have a seatbelt law. I know. I know. And, it's about time, you know, right? Well, you know, across the country, the use of seatbelts, I, I haven't looked at it in about I don't know, four or five years, but the last time I looked, overall seatbelt use was over 90% in every state except for New Hampshire, 
where it was about 45-50%. That's unbelievable to me. It, it really is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's crazy not to use them. Uh, Dr. Cohn, we appreciate your time this morning. Again, the book is All Bleeding Stops, Life and Death in the Trauma Unit. What's the best way to get a hold of it? Uh, I think you can find it, you know, online at the usual places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and hopefully you'll be able to get it at your local bookstore. I, I, I know it. It only came out like literally uh, 15 days ago, so I don't know if it's made it into bookstores. Well, I, I hope it makes it into uh, Gibson's in uh, at downtown Concord, one of the great uh, bookstores uh, in New England. No doubt about that. Doctor Cohn, thank you, and uh, glad you could be with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.